You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Some of these evening balls were bizarre. Every Tuesday, by decree of the Empress, men would attend dressed as women, and women would dance dressed as men. Catherine, then 15, was delighted by this change of costume. I must say that there was nothing more hideous and at the same time more comical than to see most men dressed this way and nothing more miserable than to see women in men's clothes. Most of the court roundly detested these evenings, but Elizabeth had a reason for this caprice. She looked superb in male clothing. Though she was far from slender, her full-bosomed figure was set off by a pair of slim, splendidly shaped legs. Her vanity demanded that these elegant limbs should not remain hidden, and the only way to display them was in a pair of tight male trousers. Catherine described the hazard she encountered on one of these evenings. The very tall Monsieur Sievers, who was wearing a hoop skirt the Empress had lent him, was dancing a polonaise with me. Countess Hendrigova, who was dancing behind me, stumbled over the hoop skirt of Monsieur Sievens as he turned around with his hand in mind. In falling, she struck me so hard that I fell beneath the hoop skirt of Monsieur Sievers which had sprung upright beside me. Severs himself became entangled in his own long skirts, which were in great disorder, and there we were, all three of us, sprawling on the floor, with me entirely covered by his skirt. I was dying of laughter, trying to get up, but people had to come and help us because the three of us were so entangled in Monsieur Severs' clothing that no one could get up, without causing the other two fall down. Robert K. Massey is the author of Nicholas and Alexandra, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Peter the Great, His Life and World, The Romanoffs, The Final Chapter, Dreadnought, Britain, Germany, and the Coming of the Great War, and Castles of Steel, Britain, Germany, and the Winning of the Great War at Sea. His new book is Catherine the Great, Portrait of a Woman. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you for having me. This is such a remarkable book, and uh, before we started, we were talking about the different kinds of biographies that have been written of this incredible woman, and I thought that was so—what what struck me um, in what you were saying was that this woman was so varied in aspect and so accomplished in so many ways that you could have biographies that would range from dry histories to wild bodice rippers— <laughs> <laughs> That's what a great... Very true. Very true. Uh, Catherine died in uh, 1796, 200 and some years ago. And every 10 or 15 years since then, there's been a biography of her written according to the style of the age, Victorians and then all through the 20th century and so forth. And it never fails to attract and fascinate people who read it. People think they know about Catherine, and they maybe they do from one perspective, the perspective of the writer. But 
over and over and over again before the book gets very far, Catherine herself takes over. She wrote her memoirs, and they're the most remarkable royal memoirs I know of. She wrote with honesty. She wrote with a wide intellectual uh, perspective. Just parenthetically, she was the friend and correspondent of Voltaire, of Diderot, and many of the great figures of the French Enlightenment. She was a wonderful writer. And so for each of us, we many, who have come along to retell the story of Catherine the Great, we start with a, an enormous advantage. The principal, our, our main character, has already told her story in uh, remarkable, really unique ways. So we just are there to represent it in the language and from the perspective of our time. Well, I must say we must be living in a fantastic time for biographies because this is one of the most uh, stunning books I've read in terms of just involving us in this world. Uh, the world of the 18th century, we might think it was not that long ago, but it seems very alien and bizarre. There are so many different worldviews, and you have this huge cast of characters, all of whom live in a are most of whom live in a at a level of luxury that's almost incomprehensible to us here in the 21st century. When you started, uh, you started out looking at Catherine, but you rapidly had to find yourself, you know, confronted with this huge cast of characters. Talk about just the beginnings of your research and how you decided to divvy up the character time between Catherine and the people in her life. Well, Rick if I may call you Rick, uh, it was simple. I just did it on a chronological basis from her birth as really a nobody, a princess, but a very minor princess in North Germany and whose very ambitious mother, who had this baby Catherine, uh, she was then called Sophia, when she was 16, the mother, and bringing her up with very little future, very little prospect other than becoming somebody's wife, a a neighboring nobleman, and so forth. And then the Empress Elizabeth, Peter the Great's daughter, who was on the throne in Russia, needed to find a young woman to marry to her nephew, also called Peter. And by a strange series of circumstances, which in itself is interesting, she brought Catherine Uh, at 14, uh, to Russia. And eventually, at 16, Catherine married the nephew, Peter. Interestingly, as a footnote, Catherine never left Russia uh, after that. She lived to be 67. She never crossed the frontier. She traveled widely in Russia, but never went back to to Europe. She married, and the marriage was a, a disaster. Peter was psychologically and physically afflicted. Uh, the result was that Catherine, his wife, lay in bed with him for nine years, and he never touched her. 
Now, let's talk about their the way they came, she came to Russia because that's really a great part of the story. One of the, my favorite characters in this book is Johanna, Chris, <laughs> Catherine's mother, then Sophia's mother. Johanna was like an, the ultimate stage mother before there was a stage. But the stage she played, there was a stage. She was playing a stage mother on the world stage. You're right, Rick. Uh, or I have uh, two young daughters, adolescent daughters now, who are ballet dancers, and good ones. I think of her, Joanna, as a ballet mother, all promoting their their daughters, all standing around outside, finding ways to say, you know, that so-and-so isn't really very good, her turnout. Well, this was Joanna's thing. She had this daughter. By the way, just to clear it up, Sophia was her name as a German princess. When she came to Russia and became Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, she was renamed Catherine. That's, that, that is the, the relationship there between the names. Uh, Joanna really thought that she was the big deal. She accompanied Catherine to Russia, uh, but she thought of herself as somebody who was going to revolutionize the relationship between Russia and Prussia, the Prussia of, of Frederick the Great, who was the warrior king uh, of, of Prussia. And Joanna couldn't have made a greater mess of it in Russia, all of which uh, reflected both positively and negatively on her daughter. Her daughter was not, was not considered part of this, but as the mother's status with Empress Elizabeth declined, Catherine, Catherine's rose. The Russians and the Empress would say, at least the daughter is not like the mother. That was uh, something which we all recognize. In fact, not only the mother-daughter relationship, but Catherine's relationship with almost everybody in her life, other women, men, uh, we see all around us. You were right. This was, uh, I am talking, I'm writing about royalty and aristocracy, along with the Russian people, and even down to the millions of serfs, but they were all humans. And mm -hmm. this is a very essentially, all of us who are reading this story are going to recognize, that's like so-and-so, I know that, I know about that. Well, I've seen that before. That's one of the things that's so interesting about historical uh, work, even nonfiction, is that um, this is all about and takes place over 200 years ago. But it really feels, because you're writing it today, it's also really about today, too. And I think that as we read this, as you wrote this, you couldn't help but see the parallels. And as we read this, we can't help but see the parallels. But the differences, too, are amazing. But back to Joanna just a little bit because she was such an interesting character. She had when she went over to Russia, she had all sorts of plans and got herself involved in all sorts of machinations, political uh, uh, darings do between Russia and Prussia, and she did. She kind of made a mess of it, didn't she? Total mess. <laughs> uh, Frederick uh, the Great, King of Prussia, briefed Joanna heavily in Berlin before mother and daughter went went to Russia. Frederick's great uh, objective, his wish, was that Joanna help some, the Prussian ambassador and the French ambassador, bring down 
the Russian chancellor, who was really the day-to-day governor uh, government. Uh, Elizabeth was lazy. She was having these transvestite balls that we that we talked about. Uh, she would intervene. She was in no sense diminished, but she just didn't choose to run the day-to. And Frederick wanted to take uh, Russia out of the orbit of diplomacy within, and he foolishly trusted Joanna to do this. And she uh, was stupid enough to write letters back to Berlin to the king. Well, the chancellor, Bestuzov, uh, intercepted these letters, had them opened, steamed open, had them copied, then sealed them up and sent them on their way. When he had enough of them, he showed them to the empress, Elizabeth. And in them, various ambassadors with Joanna joining in had made had mocked Elizabeth as being heavy, as being uh, sleeping until noon, as being lazy, as being totally uh, ridiculous. Elizabeth read these. That She had one of the ambassadors put in a coach and sent to the frontier within 24 hours. The other hung on for a while. Elizabeth allowed Joanna to stay until her daughter was married and then sent her off uh, post-haste. So Joanna arrived back, uh, diminished even from the stature she'd had before there was any interest in her daughter. Now, uh, Kath- Catherine, or, or Sophia, soon to become Catherine, uh, what, she was uh, 16 or so. And, and one of the things that's so interesting about this book is just the age of the people when they were married and all the different, uh, we think our social mores now are kind of graving into stone. It was ever thus. But things were very different back then. Uh, uh, Sophia's first, one of her first loves was her uncle. <laughs> Her uncle. <laughs> that that's right. They were both really uh, well. I guess he was twenty-ish, mm-hmm. and she was then twelve. Uh, and he suddenly uh, he was her mother's younger brother, and he suddenly came on to her, saying, "You're so young, you don't even realize what I'm talking about. I love you. I want to marry you." Well, she was all, Sophia Catherine was already ambitious enough to know that to get away from her mother, she had to marry somebody whose rank and status was higher than her mother. And she certainly wasn't going to marry her uncle. So uh, she liked him. He was a handsome young man. She put him off. She said, uh, I forgot whether she said we kissed, but it didn't go any farther. And luckily, I guess, for history. Uh, she uh, received, they received an invitation to Russia before anything could go any farther. Catherine Sophia was never in love with, with Frederic, uh, but she uh, she did admit to, I, I guess we would say, fooling around. <laughs> uh, she was intended soon enough to be, to marry Peter, uh, he had been shuffled off back to to Germany, uh, or, or Prussia, as it were, and, and Peter was not 
was brought up under circumstances that made a young man who was already not very handsome, not very prepossessing, he was brought up under very tough circumstances. He was basically abused by the man who was put in charge of him. So tell us a little a bit about Mr. Brummer. Brummer was uh, P- Peter's mother, who was the elder daughter of Peter the Great. Empress Elizabeth was the younger daughter. Uh, had married a German, the Duke of Holstein, and so her son, Peter, uh, was born in North Germany. Uh, the mother died very soon after her, her little baby's birth. The father lived for seven, six, seven, eight years afterwards, and then he died. So Peter was the titular reigning duke, but of course he had... Uh, uh, regents and so forth. Brummer was his governor, tutor, and so forth. He was in charge of the uh, discipline and the to be to be uh, care of this child. And he treated him very roughly. He was a a cavalry officer who, uh, as some contemporaries said, he may have been good at training horses by beating them, but it doesn't work so well with princes. In any case, Peter was much abused by uh, Brummer. And then when Peter was brought to Russia by his aunt, Elizabeth, Brummer went along. And uh, this made Peter very unhappy. He had been hoping to escape the torments of Brummer. Exactly. He didn't want to go to Russia. He was German through and through and through. He was a great admirer of Prussia, which in a perspective, emperor of Russia, since Russia was very soon after that, fighting Prussia, mm-hmm. uh, made the allegiances and so forth of uh, people in the Russian army and the Russian government very nervous. He loved to play with soldiers. And when he came to Russia, he had tabletops filled with toy soldiers. And when he got old enough, he would command his servants to dress up like soldiers. He was, in a sense, playing World of Warcraft with real people. Yes, that's true. And not only, and he progressed a step further. Uh, when he was emperor for a very brief time, he brought German soldiers from Holstein and had his own little private army. And his favorite activity was to drill them in the courtyard of the provincial palace where he, he lived with his wife, apart from his, uh, his mother. Now, Catherine did eventually have a child, whose name was Paul, who copied the father's behavior and taste and so forth, so that both Catherine's husband and the man who was supposed to be the father, but nobody's quite sure because he didn't sleep with Catherine for many, many years, during which time Peter was conceived with someone else's help, uh, they uh, shared, the, and, the, and, the, and the father and the son had similar tastes, pro-German, which didn't sit well with the Russians at all. Not at all. One of the things that Catherine did that was really smart from the get-go, she decided that she was going to be a Russian through and through, even if it meant converting her religion. Which, she had no choice. Yeah, uh, she had no choice with that, yeah. but she wasn't too exercised about doing it. No. And, and I think that shows through later 
in her the way she ruled the country because she was always very tolerant of different religious minorities and, and even at various points came up in defense of them in, in, when they were being persecuted. Talk about uh, Catherine in religion. Catherine was, uh, in childhood, questioning the scripture. Uh, she, had a, she was Lutheran as a, as a child. When uh, she was told, uh, when she was reading the scripture, she said to her religious student, wait a minute, it isn't fair. How can the great men of antiquity, Greece and Rome and so forth, be condemned to hell when they didn't, when Jesus didn't exist, they couldn't possibly have known salvation, and yet they're doomed? Explain that to me. And her tutor said, uh, that is scripture, uh, princess, and you just have to accept that. She said, no, no, that's not good enough. And so he said, I shall have to have your governors beat you. You know, this kind of uh, authoritarian education. She was already a, uh, a, a child of the Enlightenment. She was already a child of the Enlightenment. She had a French tutor. When she got to Russia, she adapted, Catherine, as you said, learned Russian, she adapted Russian habits, ways, language, and she used the, the Russian Orthodox Church. She supported them, they supported her, but she was never a devout believer, and she had a, a much more, a much wider view. As you said, the Enlightenment view. During these long, long years, before she became empress. She didn't become empress till she was 33. She was lonely. She read. She read Voltaire. She read Montesquieu. She read uh, Diderot. And she absorbed all these ideas, not only about religion. Of course, Voltaire's thing was attacking the Catholic Church and the monarchy in France. But she tried to understand and adapt Montesquieu's idea that a despotism doesn't have despotism doesn't have to be an evil word. This the, is a really interesting concept that you just brought up because the, the autocracy in Russia, ruled by a single person, unmitigated by any uh, democratic uh, institutions, was something she wanted to modify to ameliorate, and she felt that despotism could be benevolent if the if the despot or monarch was educated tolerant, compassionate, and so forth. And she tried to do that. It wasn't easy because Russia was largely illiterate. She was supported by the nobility. When she tried to do something about serfdom, the, the institution in which the nobility, the landowners, owned the serfs attached to, the, to property, that was re rejected by the nobility. She summoned a great legislative commission where... All the classes, the free uh, of, of free Russians and the other religions and ethnic groups in the empire came together, and she said, "Here are the problems we need to solve." Well, they couldn't solve serfdom, and she wrote later that was the thing that the failure that still bothers me the most. But she did bring in education including education for women, which was something new. 
She brought in modern medicine. She set up medical schools. She trained doctors. And until the Russian doctors were sufficient in number, she brought in foreign doctors. She, as you know, uh, she established the greatest art collection in the world by buying 4,000 painters. I mean, the art market was as it is today. Wealthy people, not only monarchs but others, competed for great paintings. And Catherine, as Empress of Russia, could outbid and get outbid them and get what she wanted. Her last and or, or, or her greatest lover, Grigory Potemkin, also well may have been her husband, was a great man in his own right. Her letters to him, which I've used extensively, are, I think I can say, passionate to the extent of almost scorching the page, was unable to live with her because he was a man, he wanted a woman who would do what he wanted. And she said, but my my shoo-shoo, I have to run this empire. <laughs> so I have to be up at 6 a.m. to start on my papers. Finally, they solved it in a good way, an interesting way. Uh, mutually, he went off to the south to conquer the south from the Turks, to take the whole Black Sea coast, to build the great cities that are there, Odessa, Sebastopol, etc. And she remained in St. Petersburg. They both had other lovers, but they remained absolutely devoted to each other. Now, one of the things that, that is so interesting is how they got there. There was this marriage to Peter, which was, uh, she was 16 at this point in time. Uh, the uh, Empress Elizabeth was still alive. And th in order to keep everybody in check, she put uh, Peter and uh, then Elizabeth under the... Uh, watchful eyes of the Choglakovas, and these people were uh, uh, kind of a male and female brummer. Yes, they were, Peter and Catherine, mm -hmm. uh, and they were closely guarded, or at least closely watched, and uh, they both found this intolerable, and this was the, the major connection between them. They both had the same enemies. Now, Elizabeth is an interesting character, and you were talking about the characters in this book. Mm -hmm. She's a very interesting person. I, I really loved her in this book, and the way you create these characters is is interesting. When you were writing this book, did you like have a a giant spreadsheet with like little timelines out to? Uh... No, I had it in my head. Oh my God, your head is very. I'm sorry, it doesn't, doesn't have much <laughs> else. You have to ask my wife why I forget things, but. Um, Elizabeth was a great character. She had many of the qualities of her father, mm -hmm. of uh, uh, wanting to do things her way. I mean, Peter was the great reformer. Uh, Elizabeth, less so. But uh, as empress for over 20 years, uh, she was a great power in Russia. When she was uh, succeeded by Peter, he failed miserably on almost every uh, score. He had by then had girlfriends among the ladies of the court. He w w wanted to get rid of Catherine. His he, wife was beautiful, and his girlfriends were ugly and stupid. That's true. That's it's true. so interesting. But you know, you know, Rick, the, 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 and this is one of the psychological things that I found. Peter was severely uh, punished by smallpox. Mm -hmm. He was his face was pitted and so forth. He thought of himself 
as ugly as well as the other things you mentioned earlier as being totally inadequate in uh, intellect and so forth. And here was this brilliant wife. Catherine wasn't beautiful, but she was striking and she was charming and she was funny and she was witty and she was intellectual. Peter was none of these things. One of the reasons, probably, that he was drawn to these, as you said, ugly, and I described them, they were, <laughs> they were um, you know, ugly as a sort of generic word, but they were not Catherine. Mm. And, but he felt at home with them, far more than with his wife. And, of course, they, the more successful or ambitious of them, hoped to replace Catherine. And Catherine was aware of this. She handled things carefully because Peter was the emperor-to-be. As you know, he lasted only six months. Well, you have such a great picture, too, of their relationship because they were friends, sort of, drawn together by the Chogladovs. Yeah. They were, but they were um, both having affairs on the side, one after another after another. Well, Catherine had three mm -hmm. affairs before she was empress. Her life is divided into before and, and after. And before was 33 years, mm -hmm. and after was 34. She had... Three significant affairs, the first of which, uh, which began when she was 25, and she was really seduced by a sort of a drawing room predator. Uh, Sergei Soltikov may well have been the father of her son, uh, Paul. And in fact, the Empress Elizabeth, who brought this German girl to Russia to produce a child, desperate after nine years of no child, actually proposed to Catherine two candidates to sire, to, to, to produce this child, and Soltikov was one. So historians are still arguing about uh, personality uh, similarities, uh, physical similarities between this man and the boy, this man and the boy, etc. It's one of the uh, uh, unanswerable questions. But the interesting thing was that if Soltikov was the father of Paul, who was the emperor and the, and the line passed through him, then the Romanov dynasty entered with Peter, Catherine's husband, and the rest of the, whatever it was, 130, 40 years of imperial Russia, it wasn't the Romanov dynasty, it was the Soltikov dynasty. <laughs> wow. And, and well, what's so interesting is that the way you create I, in this book, I think you do a great job of giving us an insight into these people and getting inside their heads. And I, I have to ask you, it must have been kind of disturbing to be inside of Peter's head because he was a, a weird guy in many ways. Well, well, I, uh, I felt sorry for him. Mm -hmm. uh, he hadn't chosen Catherine. Uh, and as you said earlier... Uh, his first reaction when she got there was he was delighted. Here was a, a a little girl, a young woman at least, who spoke German, who was his second cousin actually, and he was delighted to have a comrade. And one of the first things he did was uh, in the first weeks that she was uh, with him in in uh, in Moscow, uh, he said. Uh, pointing to another woman, he said, that's the woman I'm in love with. 
well, this, you know, they both knew that they were supposed to marry, but she had to put up with that uh, more or less throughout the long years of their marriage. Now, uh, once he became, once uh, Elizabeth died and he became Tsar, things got bad fast. He was not very good at it, and there and there was a lot of alarm. The the Russians themselves were very unhappy with him. You're right. You're right. Um, he, he his reign lasted six months, and in that time, he seriously alienated two very powerful institutions the Russian Orthodox Church. He would attend church services and mock the priests, stick out his tongue at them, get up and talk in the middle of services. He was the emperor doing this. Similarly, the Russian army. He tried to uh, get them to take off their Russian uniforms, which were bulky and shaggy and comfortable because of the cold, and dress them in the tight-fitting boots and buttoned vests and so forth, and powdered wigs of German soldiers. Uh, then he made the ultimate mistake. He had ended the war with Prussia. He had suddenly formed an alliance with Prussia, which Russia had been fighting for seven years. The Russian army, which had sought, uh, which had been victorious, uh, Cossacks had ridden through Berlin. They had to give up everything they'd taken, territory, a treaty uh, 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 victories, and uh, give it all back. And within weeks, Peter announced that he was going to go to war with Denmark on the other end of the Baltic, as because he was still Duke of Holstein, to get back a little tiny sliver of territory which the Danes had taken from, from Holstein decades before. Well, the Russian army said, no way. We're, you know, And so uh, Catherine had a new lover by then, Gregory Orlov, who was a guards officer. Orlov had four brothers, all guards officers. And with this corps circulating through the guards regiment barracks in St. Petersburg and circulating through the administrative agencies, and generally through the whole population of St. Petersburg, uh, they wanted Peter to go. And there was a coup d'etat. Uh, she took the throne. He, was he abdicated and then was arrested and sent to detention to, in a country house. And a week later, he was dead. And nobody knows to what extent Catherine had a hand in this, whether she was aware of it of an advance where she approved, but it certainly was very convenient for her. She proved to be a very apt ruler um, and, and, in fact, really embodied uh, what was, at that age, uh, the perfect kind of government. And this is one of the things I found really interesting about reading this book. Here in the 21st century, we think, you know, the perfect kind of government is a kind of representative democracy somewhat along the lines of the United States or the United Kingdom, something like that. And that seems natural to us. And the idea of an enlightened monarchy seems reprehensible, and it seems like it's no doubt going to end up something along the lines of North Korea. <clears throat> Back then, uh, it was just the opposite. It, they had the idea of... a. Uh, Enlightened monarchs seem like really 
a great idea. It seemed the natural form of government. And democracy was was uh, exemplified by Poland, which was kind of this anarchy where uh, a small slice of uh, really rich landowners ran everything. Sounds not unfamiliar. <laughs> this democracy is practiced here and now. But, and that's one of the things that's so great to read this book is to these kind of percolating perspectives that we as reader encounter going back and forth. Um, I'd like you to talk just about your ability to immerse us in this perspective of the post-Enlightenment monarch, monarchy as the perfect kind of government. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I, I begin by saying that this was the end of the 18th century. Catherine was a contemporary of Jefferson and Washington and the whole American Revolution in the 17, 1770s and then the uh, going on to the French Revolution, which you know began in, in the, at the end of the 80s, all of which had their philosophical origins in, in the Enlightenment, in uh, the idea of a, of a benevolent monarchy, which couldn't seem to find a benevolent, sufficiently benevolent monarch, except Catherine. I mean, we had George III. England did have a parliamentary system by then, but they still uh, were, uh, it was still a royal kingdom. We created here the first democracy, uh, which we then considered a benevolent democracy. We had done away with the, with the king. We had a constitution. We had representatives in the House and Senate. We had elections every four years and so forth and so on. Russia never got that far. But Russia was trying very hard to uh, ameliorate the old-fashioned term despotism. And Catherine did this. She did a great she, job. She Yes, she did. <laughs> not only did she call this legislative commission, not only did uh, larger, uh, very large uh, sections of the population feel they had some voice, some, some influence in the formation of policy. Catherine took steps on her own in crime and punishment, uh, those areas. She abolished capital punishment except for treason, uh, sedition, and political murder. She abolished torture. There's, she wrote a, uh, an instruction which very apt today. She said, torture is barbarism, and it achieves nothing. The man on the rack in great pain will say anything so that the pain will stop. You can't find the truth that way. It's ridiculous. Well, maybe we should listen to that today. She went on to uh, give the, the power of uh, judges uh, some popular component. She said, people should not be judged without uh, a member or members of the panel from their own class. First, so the justice will be done, and second, so that whatever the decision of the j judges or court, they will feel that they've at least had a, a hearing before people of their who understand them of their own background. All of this, nobody was thinking about this in England, even or in France. Um, it was 
remarkably advanced. And she was she had herself inoculated against smallpox. She, that was that was part of the medical thing I was talking about. Smallpox um, was, if not a killer, and it killed many. Uh, it was a horrible mut- mutilator, including her husband, her husband Peter. Catherine, people in the West were being inoculated. Some, um, Thomas Jefferson was inoculated in America. In England, it had become uh, possible. Catherine brought an English doctor who had written a book about it and his son. She was the first person in Russia to be inoculated, the empress. People thought this was insane. She's, And then she had her son inoculated. And this doctor um, helped set up clinics in several of the big cities. 20,000 people were inoculated. Before the end of her reign, 2 million this was this was Catherine. She thought, all right, if, if I can't free the serfs, I can at least move things in this direction. And Rick, going back to one thing about America, which I didn't know. Oh, this and is I fascinating. Think the, the king of England, George III, England had the greatest navy on the, in, the, in the world. It ruled the oceans. But they didn't have enough people or money to rule the oceans and have a great army. Uh, the British army was good, but it was small. So the, the English government was always looking to Europe to rent soldiers. We know that they rented the Hessians, and they sent the Hessians to us. And they had a, uh, uh, some, a bad track record here. But before they, uh, she, the, uh, George III tried to rent, the, he tried to rent 20,000 Russians and 1,000 Cossacks, and Catherine said no. Now, can you imagine what 20,000 Russian soldiers, all illiterate, and maybe the Hessians were too, but, and 1,000 Cossacks riding through Philadelphia and whatever, uh, New York, chasing our Continental Army, would have done to, the, to our American perspective uh, on Russia. I mean, we have to remember that in uh, the past two, two, three centuries, Russia's the one great power with which we've never fought a war. We had the Cold War. Thank goodness it didn't go to fighting. But uh, what if the Russians had burned down this, that, and the other? The Russians uh, on the battlefield were fierce. And they wanted, and uh, George offered them Rhode Island. George, George was, <laughs> George, you know, b- before the British government gave up, because of uh, it was it was a colonial war. We've learned about colonial wars. We lose them. Mm-hmm. We've lost one in Vietnam at cost of fifty thousand dead. We're losing one in Afghanistan. The people. Well, I'm not going to make a political talk. But the people in these countries live there. There are more of them than there are of us. And eventually, the colonial occupying power decides it isn't worth it. The British gave up in Afghanistan. And the British army and uh, was massacred trying to leave. The Russians were there for 10 years. The Soviets in the 70s, they left. We're there. We're going to leave. And the Afghans won't change. Uh, that was uh, a truth that won't change. People who, even even though uh, 
Afghanistan needs to be uh, reformed or brought into the modern world. They don't want us to do it for them. No, no. And, and that's one of the things I think, too, that's really remarkable about reading this book is Catherine had she was a good, pretty good with foreign affairs. She knew she avoided the kind of entanglements that would get her in trouble and dealt with the stuff that she really had to deal with, which was the Turks who were a clear and present danger to her. And let's talk a little bit about uh, the man who made that possible, Potemkin, and and her relationship with him, which was fantastic. What you said in here, I think, was so perceptive. You say that their problems weren't about love, the problems they had. They were about power. Uh, I think she actually said that in one of her letters. Um, but uh, he was a great man. He was the greatest of the of the lovers. Most of them, after Potemkin, there were she had twelve lovers during her whole life, but the younger man who uh, kept her company, shall we say, they were called favorites. They it was an official position. Mm-hmm. Uh, were decorative. Uh, some of them were bright. Uh, none of them had the political power except. Zuboff, who was the last, had the political power anywhere near the political power that Potemkin had. He was a young minor nobleman from Smolensk. He uh, was very interested in theology and becoming a priest. He didn't. He joined the army, was a cavalry officer, and he participated in a minor way in the coup d'etat. He was 10 years younger than she. When she was in her mid-40s and he was in his mid-30s, she had just dismissed the first of the inconsequential young men. Uh, she said, no, uh, he's a nice young man. Uh, he's just boring, terribly boring. Potemkin wasn't boring. He was brilliant. He was funny. He could mimic uh, any accent. Yeah, he did impersonations. And he, he impersonated imperson- her. He imperson- <laughs> yeah, she said, I hear you're very good at this. This was in one of the first meetings. She said, do one for me. And to the amazement and horror of all the people standing around, he mimicked her, her German accent, her mannerism, and so forth. People thought, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And she, what happened was that she laughed and laughed and laughed. And uh, this wasn't the beginning of their romance. He went off to war. Turkey attacked Russia twice in her reign. Uh, she won both wars. But... Uh, when she finally uh, thought, I need somebody, I need to have somebody I can talk to, you know, we all know that love isn't just hugging. You've got to be able to talk. And uh, that was very much her, her view. He, he came and uh, they had this passionate affair, which lasted a couple of years. And then, uh, as men did, and I'm told still do, he wanted to dominate as a man. He didn't want to, he didn't want uh, to take to intrude on her political power, but he wanted her to be there when he wanted her to be there. And she said, sort of her version of sweetie, as I, I think I said this, I have you of an empire to run. Anyway, so they solved it by this division of. Uh, physical division. He went off to the South. But he conquered uh, all of South Russia and the Ukraine for her. And uh, when he died, 
10 years before she did, uh, she said, I've lost half my life. And he built a huge amount of, he built huge cities down there. He built he built the, a fleet. Uh, he drove the Turks practically back on their heels to Constantinople. Um, he was going to, uh, in the whole business of partitioning Poland, which was one of the things that uh, she is not remembered fondly for by the by Poles still. Uh, he was going to be the the viceroy of Poland. Uh, she counted on him for all of the really difficult political and military assistant uh, decisions that had to be made. Now, uh, one of the great uh, high points of her life and her uh, as empress was the the. the Six-month party journey she took down the Dnieper. It's hard. Dnieper. Dnieper River. Yeah. Tell us about this journey because as it gives us an idea, we haven't talked much about this, but the luxury and the riches that all of these people lived in are just mind-boggling. These were people who were lounging around in silver and gold. She bought, as you said earlier, incredible paintings. She would just buy out entire collections. He built entire cities. This is a a luxury and spending on a scale that I don't think we can really quite wrap our minds around. That's true. It's, uh, and there's no way to, uh, even if you're, you have a lot of time, as I did, uh, to really cast that in modern terms, uh, she could spend whatever she she could do whatever she she liked in terms of spending money uh this was Potemkin had been in the south for uh twelve years and and either created or begun to create these cities and ports and roads and gardens and vineyards and all of the things and churches all of these things, and he wanted to show them to her. And she decided um, uh, to go and see them. And uh, this led to the uh, still very prevalent uh, uh, story of the Potemkin villages. Mm -hmm. The Saxon ambassador who disliked Catherine, hated Potemkin, disliked Russia, uh, was very jealous and very furious at being left behind. Catherine took all of the European ambassadors with her and a great many Russian officials and noblemen and so forth. He was left behind. And so he started this story, well, what she's going to see is just a lot of cardboard painted to look like villages and the happy peasants waving uh, from the banks of the river. I'll I'll get to that in a minute. They were on barges for a while. are simply being uh, shifted from one place to another so that the same people, uh, all the well-fed livestock is being trundled south as the barges go down. Anyway, uh, that wasn't true. Uh, she started off in Moscow in the winter. She went to Smolensk. Then they went to Kiev and waited for the ice on the river to crack. And then, they partied every single night like the, it was 1999. I, I, I guess like it was 1999. But um, uh, they went on 
these this great fleet flotilla of boats led by seven giant barges uh, which were painted red and gold and which had bedrooms and Catherine's had a, a music room, a library, a dining room. And then there was a special dining barge and uh, they were uh, propelled along both by the flow of the river and by oarsmen and they cruised slowly. They stopped for picnics. They stopped to be uh, entertained by uh, peasant orchestras and dancing and so forth. It was a gala. It was a fest, a festival. And there was um, a great deal of uh, uh, not only entertainment, but there was friction among people jostling each other for place. Catherine would invite uh, A, B, and C one day to have dinner and and X, Y, and Z would be furious, and then they'd be invited, and ABC would be jealous. You, all of those things that we still recognize. And uh, there were emperors. Emperor Joseph was traveling the as emperor, Count Falkenstein. That's right. <laughs> Joseph II was an interesting man. He tried to bring the Enlightenment to the Austrian Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, he was very interested in Catherine, and they'd been... Uh, allies for 10 years against the Turks. Both, there was peace at that, at that time. He came very skeptical, and he was very convinced. When he saw Sevastopol, a city built from nothing, uh, which became the great Russian Black Sea naval base, and when he saw this fleet filled with brand-new Russian warships, he's saying, I... I never would believe this if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. Um, so this was Potemkin's triumph, and Catherine's uh, triumph was that Potemkin, whom everybody knew had been her lover, nobody knew whether he was the husband, but everybody knew that he'd done it for her. And uh, it was uh, the last uh, really peaceful triumph that she had. Uh, it was at the end of the eight, 1870s. She died in 96. And so the next decade was uh, marred for her and for Europe by the French Revolution, which marred is the wrong word at the beginning. Revolutions of, often start with uh, the highest, the most noble Enlightenment sentiments. You know, Liberté, égalité, fraternité. And then you descend into the black hole of the terror, Robespierre, and so forth. So uh, Catherine uh, gravitated from her liberal uh, youth, young womanhood, the early years of her, em her empire, to um, being conservative and worried that the revolution was spread in, in her direction. One of the, the, the triumphs of this book is to make this all clear, to put all this in the reader's mind. And I think you do a great job. I mean, this could have been a 2,000-page book. It's it's not. It's a, it's kind of a page-turner. It feels, reads like a novel. It feels like a page-turner. You really want to find out what's going to happen. Um, talk about your process as a writer uh, 
trimming the story down, keeping it taut, drawing all these disparate strands together. I mean, did this all come together for you? And did you just sit down, read for a couple years, and then just sit down and pen this from A to Z? I wrote as I went along. Mm -hmm. But of course, as I went along, I changed what I'd written earlier. And uh, I had a discussion with my editor, Bob Loomis, who's the great... He, he just retired this summer after 54 years at Random House. Uh, and he said early on, uh, as he saw that I was spending a lot of time with her, as we have today, with her childhood and youth and young womanhood, he said, Bob, um, I don't know how long you're planning to go, but as you know, Rick, books are not supposed to be as long as they used to be. And he said... Uh, I worry that you're spending too much time on the pre-Empress years. So there, the he was saying it's going to be too long because we want to get to Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia. And I said, uh, "Oh, it'll work. Uh, I'll do it in the within the dimensions we talked about." But I have four daughters, and I've watched them grow up. Uh, each uh, from childhood to adolescence. I've watched them become women, young women. I've watched them learning what it is to be a woman. Uh, through life, by reading, they've all read Jane Eyre, everything from Jane Eyre to Twilight. Uh, and uh, how do you deal with boys? How do you deal with men? Uh, how do you deal with a society still uh, in the world and, and even here, although it's changed somewhat, uh, where men tend to be in in positions of greater power. And uh, here's a woman who became, I think, with Elizabeth of England, Elizabeth I of England, uh, the greatest, not only the greatest wom woman in the monarch, in the age of monarchy, but one of the greatest monarchs Certainly she and Peter the Great were the two great Russians in the 300-year Romanov dynasty. I felt it was very important to show how she got there. And in doing so, I, I wasn't on an educational high horse, but I thought that women today would be interested to see what this woman did coming from nowhere 220 years ago to... Uh, become who she became to do what she wanted to do within her limits, within the, the limits of her environment. Uh, that was a story I wanted to tell. I think you did superbly. I've been speaking with Robert K. Massey. His new book is Catherine the Great, Portrait of a Woman. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.